Ligonier Ministries, the home of Renewing Your Mind, presents Dust to Glory, an overview of the Bible with R.C. Sproul. I've mentioned that I've met several people who vowed that they were going to read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and they started with deep resolution and read through the book of Genesis and then sailed through the book of Exodus. But once they hit the book of Leviticus, they began to lose some of their zeal for their reading through the Bible, and many drop out in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Some endure Leviticus and make it to the book of Numbers, and then they fold their tents and go home. And it is a rare few that read all the way through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the reason for that is simple, and that is that in Genesis and Exodus we have historical material with which we're at least vaguely familiar, and there's a lot of action and interest uh, in the uh, information that's found therein. But as soon as we get to Leviticus, we encounter information and material in the Bible that in many respects is completely foreign to us. Because the book of Leviticus contains long and detailed discussions of specific rules and regulation for the behavior of the people in the celebration of religion within Israel. There are detailed uh, descriptions of how a person can discern the difference between a normal, uh, harmless skin rash and the discerning of leprosy. And people get bogged down in this because it's so foreign. And that's why I often recommend to people in their maiden voyage through Scripture that they read a quick overview of the historical books first and then go back and fill in the gaps with these more uh, difficult pieces of literature. And that's what we're trying to do in this introductory survey of the Old Testament to provide you with the overview of a framework or the structure of the whole of Scripture, and then hope that you will go back and read the individual chapters and verses of each book of the Bible. And I have to say this, as much as we may struggle initially with books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, those three books of the Pentateuch are a virtual storehouse of wealth of detailed information that has profound meaning for our understanding of the New Testament and will often miss it the first time through because we don't have that basic structure in which to, to uh, place the details of these books. But the book of Leviticus is called Leviticus in the history of the church because it gives all of the rules and regulations for the activities of the tribe of Levi. It was the tribe of Levi from which the priesthood was established in the Old Testament. Aaron and his descendants were called to serve in what we call the cultus of Israel. Now, I'm almost afraid to use that word at all in the course of, of these lectures because as soon as we hear that word cultus, it conjures up in our minds the idea of something dreadful, namely of a cult. We think of, of cults as being these uh, extreme, radical, fringe 
sects that are involved in things like Jonestown and, and the like. But this is really a technical term that describes the life and activity of any religious community. And Israel has an elaborately established cultus, that is, religious community. And it does not carry the negative connotation that the word cult does. But the book of Leviticus is very much concerned with Levitical principles and what we call ritual law. And it's because the rituals of the Old Testament are so strange and foreign to us that we sometimes become bored or intimidated by the material found in the book of Leviticus. But if we stop for a moment and remember that every ritual, that is, every rite that God instituted among his people in the Old Testament had some significance that points beyond itself to the fulfillment of redemption that comes to pass in the person and work of Christ. So as we look carefully and minutely at some of these detailed rituals of the Old Testament, there's a sense in which they just open up for our understanding the depth and the riches of what we find in the New Testament. The book of Numbers is called by that name because it's basically concerned with the numbering of the tribes and their situation and portion apportionment to the various places uh, that they would occupy in the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy, the prefix deutero means second and the Greek word nomos means law. And so the book of Deuteronomy simply refers to the second book of the law, which in a sense is a recapitulation of all of the law that we find in uh, particularly in Exodus and later on in, in the other books of the Pentateuch. But what we're going to do today is look chiefly at the significance of the book of Leviticus for the Old Testament priesthood. If there is one overarching theme that we find in Leviticus, it is the theme of holiness. It is the theme of the holiness of God as it is to be manifested in the rituals and in the behavioral patterns of the people that he has called to himself, saying to them, Be ye holy even as I am holy. And so all of these rites and and laws that govern the, the cultic life of Israel are concerned about maintaining the holiness of the nation. And it begins really earlier in Exodus with the institution and ordination of the priesthood. Because in the first instance, the, the fundamental purpose of the priest in the Old Testament was to be God's minister of the holy. Now, one of my favorite passages that illustrates this in the Old Testament is found in the 10th chapter of the book of Leviticus. It's one of those dramatic incidents that are recorded there 
but sheds enormous light on the significance and the role of the Levitical priesthood. It tells the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Chapter 10 of Leviticus begins as follows. Then Nadab and Abihu, some call him Abihu, but I'm going to call him Abihu. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, these two verses give us a succinct, terse, summary description of what happens. I mean, this is so characteristic of the Old Testament to just sort of skim over lightly profoundly important events and, and, and almost uh, make them appear as, as postscripts to Old Testament history. But certainly for Aaron, this was a dramatic moment in his life because his two sons, who were following in his footsteps, who had been ordained and consecrated to the priesthood, came before the altar and offered what the Bible calls strange fire. That is, these young priests were experimenting with certain innovations in the process of worship that had not been consecrated or prescribed by God. And on the surface, it looks like a harmless type of thing. But God's response to their innovation and their changing of the divinely ordained mode of worship was to kill them instantly. Now let's read what happens as a result. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Allow me the liberty and license for a moment to read between the lines here. When Aaron discovers that his sons have been killed instantly by the God They were consecrated to serve, and the God Aaron is giving his life in dedication to. He must not only have been profoundly grieved by the death of his sons, but he must have been totally bewildered and upset that God would do this. And many of us today, when we read stories like this in the Old Testament, are offended by them. What kind of a God would summarily execute priests for what seems to be such a small and insignificant thing. And I can hear Aaron rushing to the tent of Moses because after all, Aaron, even though he's consecrated as the high priest and the chief priest of Israel, is still not the leader of Israel. The leader of Israel at this time in history remains Moses. He is the mediator of the Old Covenant, and the leadership authority has been invested in him. And so Aaron goes straight to Moses, and I am assuming that what he's doing is he's saying, what is God doing here? Moses, you need to talk to God. Protest this. 
unjust manifestation of his wrath. And Moses apparently tries to calm Aaron down. Moses doesn't have to go to the mountain and inquire of God as to why such a thing would take place. He says to Aaron, 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 this is what the Lord said. Don't you remember when he established the priesthood and gave the priests their very purpose for being? He said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all of the people, I must be glorified. Now, in this succinct response that Moses gives to Aaron, I think we find the leap motif of the whole book of, of Leviticus. And indeed, the cardinal crystallization of the essence of worship for all of God's people for all time. From the first offering that was given by Abel in the earliest days of Genesis to the worship that is offered in heaven by the angels as it's recorded in the book of Revelation. God, at the center of worship, is to be regarded as holy. And the focal point of all worship and of all religious life is the glory of God. That's why we saw with the tabernacle that only the priests could enter into the holy place. And the Levites were stationed all around the tabernacle to ensure that all of the activity that surrounded the worship of the people of God manifested His holiness and declared His glory. So I believe that's the key to understanding the book of Leviticus and the entire Old Testament priesthood. What these rituals that governed the laws that are set forth in Leviticus are about are the removal of defilement or the removal of the profane from that which is sacred. And this is the task of the priesthood to keep before the people their holy vocation, their call to mirror and to reflect the character of God in all of their covenant life. And so we have these seemingly endless lists of rituals of purification and of cleansing coming right down to the decision as to what foods could be eaten by the people of Israel. We look at the dietary laws of Israel. And certain animals are allowed to be consumed for food and certain others are forbidden. Likewise, certain forms of, uh, of uh, produce that is grown by the uh, farmers of the day was permit- permissible to uh, consume while others was not. Now, an awful lot of people look at those dietary laws in the Old Testament and assume that the only concern that God has in this legislation of diet is medicinal or therapeutic. 
because even from today's standpoint, we look back and we see that certain foods that were prohibited from the Israel's table are foods that even in our day are capable of carrying disease. We still are very careful. Well, we don't eat, as a rule, scavengers who feast upon dead carcasses and can easily become hosts for parasites and for the transfer of serious diseases. And certainly there was a therapeutic dimension. The prohibition against the eating of pork, for example, in the Old Testament was probably related to how easily pork can become contaminated with uh, uh, trichinosis and that sort of thing. But if we look a little bit more deeply at the Old Testament regulations with respect to diet and with respect to food, we see that it's not only therapeutic or medicinal. Because some of the very foods that are forbidden to Israel in the Old Testament later on get their okay in the New Covenant situation where it was still an ancient culture where they didn't have the uh, sanitary uh, measures available to them that we have in our culture today. But more importantly, the distinction was made between that which was clean and that which was unclean. And that's the fundamental distinction, not simply clean with respect to medicinal cleanliness, but clean with respect to the types of animals that were involved. For example, Israelites were restricted in their food diet to eating only domesticated animals, not wild animals. And the grains and the food substances of the produce that were part of the uh, allowed diet indicated, for the most part, those foods that were a direct result of the crop raising of the people. And so the people were, in a sense, allowed to eat of the fruit of their labor, but were to be careful about eating things that were strange and foreign and outside the camp. I mean, even down to these seemingly innocuous points of dietary consideration, there is this desire to avoid the defilement of sin. They are symbolic in their dimension here to say that God has so ordered this nation, called it to be separate and consecrated, different from all other nations, because God himself is holy. God himself is other. God himself is different from us. And the fundamental difference between God and his people is the difference between the one who is absolutely pure and holy and his creatures who have become sinners. Now, all the world has been plunged into sin. But God, in his purposes of redemption, to redeem his people from sin, creates a nation and say, I'm going to make you different. I'm going to make you a representative of me. You shall be holy even as I am holy. And down to the last detail, I'm going to legislate a nonconformist view so that people will look at you 
and see that you were different. And this became a matter of great moral commitment to the godly people of Israel so that when they were carried away in captivity and they were commanded to eat of the food of the foreign nations, they refused to do it because they didn't want to violate these laws and become defiled in the sense or in the presence of God. And so the theme of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man recurs throughout the book of Leviticus. Now the priests, in addition to being responsible for all of these ritual laws, were also responsible to some degree for being civil administrators. They held the role that later would be given to the judges, and they were the physicians of the day. I mentioned that lengthy section in the Old Testament there where people have to go through this, this detailed list of, of examination for the purpose of diagnosis to see whether it's a harmless skin rash or to see whether it's, it's leprosy. And it was the priests who were responsible to make the final diagnosis in cases like that. You recall in the New Testament when Jesus healed the lepers. When he was finished healing the lepers, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. That's like saying, now go to your doctor and have the doctor confirm that you are indeed healed from this dreadful disease. One of the important aspects uh, of the priesthood in the Old Testament is the care with which God designates and designs their garments. That we find earlier in the book of Exodus in Exodus 28. Exodus 28 begins with these words. God is speaking and he says, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. And then what follows is an elaborate, detailed description of the design of the ephod, the breastplate, and the turban, and the the, the names that are inscribed across the gowns of the priest, that they are to be holy unto the Lord. But we wonder, why this detail in the dress and the garments of the priest. And God gives the answer. He said, I want these priests to be different. I want them set apart and the clothes that they are to wear are to be uh, for glory and for beauty. This is often overlooked that in the design of the tabernacle, in the design of the priesthood, the glory of God is at the center of concern. And the link that is found here between divine glory and beauty. We often miss that. That beauty itself calls attention to the nature and the character of God. That's why in in summary we can say that these instructions for worship in the Pentateuch are to worship God in the beauty of holiness. 
For more information about Ligonier Ministries, call 1-800-435-4343 or contact us on the web at Ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R dot O-R-G. Or write P.O. Box 54 Orlando, Florida, 32854.